Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father God, we, we thank you, Lord, for your Word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who empowers us and your Holy Spirit who overflows us and equips us to be effective witnesses for you. We thank you, Lord, for the spiritual gifts, Lord. We, we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to serve you, Lord, to partner with you in your work. You're so good. You're so gracious. You are so merciful towards us, Lord. There's so many blessings. We can't name them all, but we thank you, Lord. We do thank you for those who are in attendance tonight, whether online or in the building here on campus. We pray that all of us, Lord, will have open and receptive hearts to receive your word and the work you desire to do in us and through us. And I do ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit tonight that you'll empower me and equip me to break the bread of your word, Lord. It's such an honor, and and I pray that I would decrease and you increase and be glorified tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So quick refresher. Uh, Second Samuel, uh, which is the book that um, we're studying, of course, on Wednesday nights. It, it actually begins with David being told that Jonathan and Saul have died in the war against the Philistines. And then afterwards, in that same chapter in Second Samuel 1, we see uh, David Uh, given a lamentation over Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan, of course, was David's best friend. And Saul was the previous king of Israel. And King Saul saw David as a threat. And so therefore, David was the enemy of King Saul. Well, both of them are dead. And and we we see that David found out about that in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, David went to Hebron which is in Judah, that is in the territory of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. And there at Hebron in Judah, David was anointed king of Judah by the men of Judah. And so that will be in the southern part of Israel. And then we saw in chapter 2 that Abner, who was the former commander of Saul's army, he had made Ishbosheth Saul's a living son at the time, he made him king over the rest of Israel. And so David was king over the southern part, over Judah, and then Ishbosheth was, was king over the rest of Israel. Remember, Abner, Saul's commander, uh, put Ishbosheth in that place. He went against the will and the word of God in doing that. And, and furthermore, in, in chapter 2 of Second Samuel, um, we see that Israel and Judah went to war against each other. And of course, Judah won. And the scriptures told us that, that uh, Saul's house became weaker and, and David's house, it, it became stronger. And so we see that was done according to the perfect will of God. But then in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, we see a turn of events here because we see that Abner, King Saul's former commander, had actually joined forces with David because he got into an, a disagreement with Ishbosheth. Got into a disagreement with him. 
And, and so now Abner, in chapter 3, he ended up making an agreement with David to gather all Israel so that they would make a covenant or agreement with David so that David would be king over them as well. But as the story goes, before Joab, I'm sorry, not Joab, before Abner can finish what he started, Joab, one of David's men, actually murdered Abner. And Joab, of course, had an accomplice. He had his brother with him. His brother, it was named Abishai. And so Abishai and Joab together killed Abner, this this guy who was going to uh, be instrumental in turning over the remainder of Israel to David, who was the rightful king in the first place. And then you see in chapter 4, we see more murder, more scandal, be, because Ishbosheth now, the, this puppet king that Abner had put into place. Now we see that he got murdered by somebody named Rechab and Bayana. And so they brought Ishbosheth's head to David in Hebron because they were hoping to gain favor with David. But David, in turn, did something unexpected, something that they did not expect. He executed them because what they did was evil. Because David's goal was not to take over the kingdom of Israel through violence, but he wanted to wait on the Lord. That things would happen according to the Lord's timing. And so what we're going to do tonight is pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And as usual, we do have a title for the study, and, and the title is The Key to Victory. And so what we'll see before I read verse 1 to you, just want to let you know that what you'll see in verses 1 through 3 in 2 Samuel chapter 5 can also be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. And so you want to, you want to read those together and you'll see that it's pretty much the same information. But in verse 1 in 2 Samuel 5, it says this. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. In other words, we're your family. We are fellow Israelites. And also, they said, in time past, when, when Saul was king over us, you, David, were the one who led Israel out and you brought them in. You were the military leader for for Israel. You, You were used by God to win a lot of battles. And the Lord said to you, and now they're recognizing this, maybe they always did, but just ignored it. But they said, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be a ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders, these are, are the tribal leaders. Remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel. So these are the tribal leaders. They, they came together in verse 3 to the king at Hebron. And, and, and King David made a covenant. He made an agreement with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So now he's the king over the entire nation. 
And so what we see here in these uh, first three verses is that uh, the Israelites who once rejected David as king are now ready to receive him. They're now ready to receive this king they had once rejected. And, and I see here a picture of the Jews and, and Jesus, their Messiah, who many of them do not, who do not see as their Christ, as their Messiah or anointed one. Because here what you see, as I wanted to point out, is something that would, is going to take place at the end of the Great Tribulation. And so just to back up, right now we are what we call the church age. And the church age began on the day of Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured upon the believers. So that was the beginning of the church age. Again, that's where we are now. And so the church age, you know, God is primarily working in and through the church right now. And the church is made up of all nationality, no matter what language you speak, as long as the person repents and put their faith in the Jesus of the Bible for salvation, they are a part of the church, also known as the bride of Christ. And you could be Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. You put your faith in the Jesus of the Bible, you are a believer, you are saved, you're going to heaven, you're going to spend eternity with God the Father, you're going to spend eternity with Jesus. This is the church age right now, but the church age is going to end one day, and it's going to end with something that's called the rapture, when the church is taken up out of the earth, and and we meet the Lord in the air, and the scripture says, so we will ever be with the Lord. But then there's something that's going to take place on this earth sometimes, sometime after the rapture, and it's called the, the tribulation period. It's a period of seven years, and that period of seven years technically, according to Daniel, doesn't start until the Antichrist signs the agreement with the Jews, with Israel. And so it's the final week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy And so that 70th week has not happened yet. That's the tribulation period. And so remember, it begins, of course, sometime after the rapture and once the Antichrist signs that agreement with them. And so the clock ticks on that seven-year period, that remaining seven-year period of Daniel's prophecy that God, of course, gave him. He didn't come up with it on his own. But then, of course, it says that in the middle of the week, In the middle of that seven-year period at the three-and-a-half-year mark, something is going to take place. The abomination of desolation is going to take place where the Antichrist is going to set up an image of himself and he himself is going to declare himself in the temple to be God and that all should worship him. That's the abomination of desolation. And then you're going to see the judgment of God because the the tribulation period is God pouring his wrath upon the earth. And that's something that the church won't go through. We'll be taken up in the rapture. So if God is pouring his wrath upon an unbelieving Christ rejecting earth, if that's God's wrath, that, you know, that's not something the church is going to go through because Jesus already has taken the wrath of God the Father for us. He's not going to beat up his bride, the church. Now, will there be some people who come to faith during the tribulation? Yes, 
That's what some people call the tribulation saints. Or a better term would be the post-rapture saints. But then also during that seven-year tribulation period, he's going to turn his attention back to the Jews. Now his program will go from the church. Remember, we're in the church age. And then the program during the tribulation period, now he's going to focus on the Jews again. You have the 144,000 sealed, remember that? So they're going to be like 144,000 Greg Lorries or Billy Graham sharing the gospel during that time. But at the end of that tribulation period, that seven-year period, the, the Jews, they are going to long to see their Messiah. Just like the Israelites in the first three verses of tonight's lesson. At first they rejected David, but now they are ready to receive their king. Well, at the end of the tribulation period, the Jews are going to be, they're going to be ready to receive finally their king. They're going to see Jesus as their Messiah. They're going to be ready for him. So that's why I say what we see there in the first three verses to me is a picture of the Jews and, and Jesus of what's going to happen in the future. And in fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. This, this is where I'm going with this. It says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And of course, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You see that God has given people free will. Just if you're wondering in verse uh, 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. And here's the part I want to highlight. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and at the end of the tribulation period, right before Jesus' second coming, this is what, this is what the Jews are going to say. That remnant who believe, they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're going to be ready to finally acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as their Messiah. Just like these Israelites did here when they finally acknowledged David as their king. In verses 4 and 5, it says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. 30 years old. That's interesting because Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry, but that's off the point, but that's interesting. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And so now David here is reigning over a united nation as he is anointed king over all of Israel. And so here, this is actually the third time that David was anointed because he was first anointed uh, probably as a teenager, maybe some believe maybe 15 years old, by Samuel, that great man of God, that prophet who is now dead at this point. So that was the first time he was anointed. But then he was anointed as king of Judah by the men of Judah. And so, like I said, this here is the third time he's anointed. But this time it is over all of Judah. And so in these next few verses in, in verses 6 through 10, um, you can also read an account of this in First Chronicles 11 verses 4 through 9. So I'm trying to show you these parallel verses. And so... 
In 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 10, I'm going to say it again. You can also read about the same account in 1 Chronicles 11, 4 through 9, in case you want to um, compare them in your private time. But beginning at verse 6, back in 2 Samuel 5, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. And these were one of the Canaanite peoples. And they were the inhabitants of the land. And they spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. In other words, they're, they're taunting David. They, they're, they're saying, even the blind and the crippled can stop you or keep you out of Jerusalem. And what they were thinking was that David cannot come in here. This place is too fortified. This stronghold is, is too impenetrable uh, for David to come in here. Even the, the, the crippled and the blind can, can get rid of David, will take care of him. But in verse 7, it says, nevertheless, David took the stronghold. He took the fortress or this strong place of Zion, that is the city of David. And by the way, the, you know, Zion or the city of David here is also another name for Jerusalem. And now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft or this water tunnel and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. In First Chronicles eleven six, it tells us that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, who was actually David's sister, went up first, and he became chief. He became a commander over the army under David. And Joab, by the way, is one of David's nephews. And so Joab is the one who was um, able to achieve this, who was able to climb up by way of that water shaft and defeat the Jebusites. And therefore they say, as we continue, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house or palace. Now, what does it mean that the lame and the blind were hated by David's soul. Well, remember in these verses we just read that, that the Jebusites have boasted that their city, Jerusalem, where they were dwelling at that time, was so strong that even the blind and the lame men could defend it. And so one way of, inter- of interpreting this, and I lean this way, is by seeing that David was actually using their own taunts against them. And so, when, in other words, what's going on here is that the, the blind and the lame that are hated by David's soul are actually the Jebusites themselves. It's a reference to them. So he turned their taunts around and, and they, he used it against them saying that they would not be allowed in David's court. And then in verse 9, it says, David dwelt in the stronghold. So so he defeated Jerusalem, defeated the, the Jebusites, the dwellers in Jerusalem. So he defeated them. Finally, the Israelites won after all these years. And now he's dwelling there in that stronghold, in that fortress, and he called it the city of David. And guess what? That city of David 
has been excavated. It's real. You know, in 2017, I, I shared this, um, you know, sometimes in, <clears throat> in some of the studies. You know, in 2017, we, we had the blessed opportunity, my wife and I, along with, you know, the group from the church to go to Israel. And at this time, this is how it looked in 2017. They, they had excavated this city of David. And so now those who are going in 2023, it's, it's going to be, you know, it's going to look even better than this. It's going to be more stuff. And so, but look at that. This is real. The Bible is true. And so if somebody asks me, why am I Christian or why do I believe the Bible's the word of God? The answer is simple because it's true. Well, how do you know it's true? Well, one reason is when, when it talks about history, it is historically correct. And, and, and there's nothing in archaeology or no archaeological finds. There, there's nothing there that has overturned anything that the Bible has said. And so here's just one example. Excavation site of the city of David. But David built, and this is a picture from my phone, by the way, not something I pulled from the Internet. So that's a picture from my phone. So, you know, I don't, you don't have to worry about anybody suing the church because of copyright stuff. <laughs> and so David built all around from the millow, or it literally means the landfill. Um, some Bible translations say, say the, the, the supporting terraces. And it was probably some type of military fortification. And so he built from the millow, whatever that may mean, and inward. Um, and First Chronicles 11.8, it adds a little more information. It says, and he built the city around it from the middle to the surrounding area. And it says, Joab repaired the rest of the city. Again, that's David's nephew. And so in verse 10, back in Second Samuel chapter 5, it says, so David went on and he became great. And the Lord God of hosts, or the Lord of Heaven's armies, that's what that means, was with him, was with David. But, but notice how David went on and became great. I want to highlight that. I want to park there for a second because just like King David, we could all go on to be great. God can use each and every one of us to go on to do great things. But, but Jesus taught that true greatness would come through service. True greatness would come through service. And so that, that brings to mind Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and 26. And, and these are some verses that are near and dear to my heart. And, and I say that because these are the verses that, that God used to call me into the ministry. You know, I was at the time, at the time in my old church that I used to fellowship at in California, um, you know, I was probably maybe 22 years old and, and I, I was 22 years old and I asked the Lord uh, to reveal to me if he, if he wants me to uh, be a preacher, if he wants me to uh, be in the ministry, because at that time the, the church had pretty much voted me to be the youth pastor. I never even heard of a youth pastor, but they voted me to be the youth pastor. So now I'm, I'm 22 years old and I'm like, well, time out. I, I, you know, I, is, am I really supposed to be doing this? 
And after a conversation with a friend, I didn't ask the friend about it, but he was a pastor. Actually, he was somebody who was a fellow teacher of mine. We worked at the same school, but he was a pastor. And I didn't even bring this up, but he started talking about his testimony and how he prayed and the Lord showed him and, and something clicked. I was like, you know what? I never prayed about that. I just, you know, people ask me to do things in the church and I've just always done it. And so I was like, let me back up. Let me, let me pray. And I, and I asked the Lord, Lord, if this is something you want me to do, show me by next Sunday that this is what you want. And so um, long story short, the Lord woke me up from my sleep on that following week, the night, you know, um, on the sixth day, actually. It was right before midnight of the seventh day. He woke me up out of my sleep. And I said he woke me up because I just woke up. I, I, I didn't have to use the restroom or whatever. Just woke up, eyes popped open. And, and so I just had this great impression, this heavy impression on my heart to read. And, and normally I would, I would read before I went to bed anyway, but um, I, I was going to just wait till the morning. And, and I just felt this heavy impression, like, no, read. And I couldn't shake it. And even though I tried to lay back down and ignore it. And, and so I just, I opened up the Bible and this is where God took me. And at that time, of course, I, it was the King James Version I was reading. And so where it says servant, you know, it says minister in the King James Version. And so um, after reading it, that's when it clicked to me. And then after that, you know, just God just took it from there. But, but that's why I say these, these verses here are near and dear to me. And so uh, this goes along with the point that I was sharing with you that, that we could all be great, but it would come through service. And so it says, but Jesus called them, speaking of his disciples to himself. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise or they flaunt authority over them. But then he looks to his disciples. He looks to his students, his, his followers. And, and he said, it shall not be that way among you. Don't lord it over people. Don't flaunt your authority over people. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And in the King James Version, it says, let him be your minister, but of course it's the servant. And it goes on to say in this same chapter, a few verses down, and it says, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so when we are servants, we are actually copying Jesus's example. He is the servant of all servants who went to the cross because he was, he was being a servant. He was be obeying the will of the Father. He wanted to make sure that we would not have to experience eternity away from the Father. And so what a great example to follow. So I, I say all of that to say that every one of us can be great. That is in God's eye. Maybe not in the, this world's eyes because greatness in the world's eyes is, is how much money you have, how high of a position you have at work, what office you hold in the government. But no, greatness in, in God's eyes is who is the servant, who serves the most, who has that servant's heart. But there is a main commonality to, to all who go on to greatness besides being a servant. And that common thing that, that, that all who have greatness have, that is greatness in the sight of God have, is the fact that God is with them. Just like he was with David. 
As you read verse 10 again, it says, so David went on and became great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. That is the commonality of of all who go on to greatness is that God is with them. As we go on to uh, the next few verses in verses 11 through 16, just want to let you know that you can also find the same information as 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. I'm kind of hitting a bunch of things at the same time, so I'm showing you the parallel verses as we go through our study in 2 Samuel 5. And so in verse 11, it says, Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and he sent cedar trees or these cedar logs. He sent carpenters. He sent masons, which are the stone cutters, and they built David a house. They built him, in other words, a palace. And so David knew that the Lord had established or confirmed him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So David understood all of this about his role that, yes, I am king. Yes, God really does want me to be king over over Israel. He, He solidified it. And even this foreign king is acknowledging this and And he's sending these things to me and and building this palace for me. But he also noticed this, speaking of David, he also noticed that the kingdom was exalted, not because of how cool David was, not because David was good looking or this great warrior, but, 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 but the kingdom was exalted because of what? Because God loved his people. Israel. It says for the sake of his people, Israel. That's what it says in the New King James Version. But it's talking about how God loves his people. So, so David was blessed. David was elevated. The kingdom was doing well, not because of just David himself, just to be a blessing to David himself, but so that Israel would be blessed. He loved his chosen people, this chosen nation. And you see, some of us today, you see, we think that we are blessed with possessions. We think that we're blessed with success and promotions and these skills and these talents. And we think we're blessed with spiritual gifts because of how we look, because of who we are, because of who we come from, who we're related to, because we come to Calvary Chapel or that we're which is just so blessed with all these things because of all these things and because I'm so cool. There's no, I believe he wants us to be a blessing to others. I believe that personally, and I shared this before, that personally, if I do share anything good, and I'm about, you know, not the best teacher at all, But if I share anything that makes sense or halfway decent, if there's any word that is timely, that is a blessing to you, that God has given to me is not because I have this extra in with God or because I'm so special, more special than anybody else. But no, I truly believe it's because he loves his people and he wants you to hear that timely word. And I'm just blessed to be in position to be used by him. 
I'm just blessed that by his grace, I'm, I'm allowed to do what I'm able to do. And, and so think about that. If you are blessed, if you are gifted, if you are super anointed, consider the fact that it's because God wants you to use it to, to be a blessing to others. He wants you to be a conduit or a blessing or a channel of his blessing. That is through the power of his Holy Spirit. Consider that. Think about that. And thank God for it. Verse 13, it says, And David took more concubines. He took more what you would call the secondary wives of a lower status than a primary wife. But, but these concubines, they, once again, they would have a, a higher status than the common servant. And, and so these are the concubines. So he took more of them. He took more wives from Jerusalem. After he had come from Hebron, or Hebron, however you want to pronounce it. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. And so he has some sons in Hebron now. He has sons born to him in Jerusalem. And now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Okay, you read all of these names quick, you might hurt yourself. And so I'll try to read through them. Slowly, Shamua, which it, all, it could also be um, Shimea or Shimea, um, according to uh, First Chronicles, uh, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, or Elishama, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishama, Eliada, which could also be, be Elida, and then Eliphalet. And so there's a couple of people there who you may know. I know one of them for sure you may know is Solomon, the, the man of wisdom, this man of wisdom. You know, God used him to write, um, you know, many of the Proverbs, almost all of the Proverbs. And, of course, uh, Ecclesiastes and the, the Song of Solomon. So this was a wise man. Many of you know about him. And then another one. But many of you may be familiar with that I want to point out is Nathan. And so I want to focus on them too, just real quick. And it's not a whole study on these guys, but uh, very interesting. Nathan, Solomon. Why do I point those two out? Because uh, I point them out because in Jesus's genealogy in Matthew, we see that the son of David that is included in, in that genealogy is Solomon. But in the gospel, according to Matthew, what you're looking at is Joseph's bloodline. And Joseph is Jesus's stepfather or adoptive father. And so he came through the bloodline of Solomon. But in Luke, we see Mary's, Jesus's mother's, and that's his mother according to his humanity. Not according to his deity, because Jesus always was God, always will be. But according to his humanity, Mary is his mother. So once again, in Luke, we see her bloodline. And we see Jesus' genealogy through his mother. And the son of David that is listed in Mary's bloodline is Nathan. And so... Just wanted to point that out to you. And so this 
This brings up this point that either way, whether from his adoptive father, Joseph, or from his mother, Mary, Jesus would have had a right to the throne of Israel. He would have had a right because he had the actual lineage or the bloodline through Mary, according to his humanity, because he's fully God, fully man. He's not 50% God, 50% man. So we want to make sure we state that correctly. He's fully God, fully man. So according to his humanity, the actual lineage through Mary would allow him to ascend to the throne of Israel. That's very important. And that will be through, once again, Nathan. But he also had a right to the throne legally. That is, through the legal lineage, through his adoptive father, Joseph. So either way, Jesus is covered and, and as the one who can rightly be the king. And one day he is going to come back, right? And he's going to reign from Jerusalem. It's going to be his headquarters uh, during a thousand year reign. We call the millennial kingdom. And so I wanted to point out those two gentlemen to you, Solomon and Nathan. But moving on to verses uh, 17 through 25, I just want to share with you that you can find the same story in 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verses 8 through 17. And so in verse 17, it says, and back in 2 Samuel 5, it says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. Then the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim, which is there um, on the screen. You see the map there. And in verse 19, it says, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And so David went to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water or like a flood of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And so this name is interesting because Baal Perazim is literally translated the master of breakthroughs. And that is such a great description of God because he is indeed the master of breakthroughs because he's able to break through anything that troubles us. But as we continue in verse 21, it says, and, and they left their images there. Those Philistines did the enemy of Israel. They left their images, their false gods, their idols. And David and his men carried them away. What did they do with them? Well, First Chronicles 14, 12 tells us that they were burned. They burned those idol gods. And so that's why I keep bringing up these parallel verses in First Chronicles so you can, so you can see the, the, the information that it doesn't add or take away, but it adds further light to what's going on here. And so they burned those idols. In verse 22, 2 Samuel 5, it says, Then the Philistines went up again, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them 
and come upon them in front of the mulberry or balsam trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, also, you know, could be referred to as the balsam trees. You'll see that in some translations. Then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so. And the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. And so David here, even in this study tonight, he continues to experience victories. This man of God, this sweet psalmist of Israel, this king that God had put in place. It was his perfect will to reign over his people. He continues to experience Victories, victory upon victory. You know, some sports shows, I don't know how many of you watch sports shows. Not everybody's a sports fan. You know, some people can go overboard, of course. But but anyway, you'll see that sometimes these sports analysts, they would often reveal what's called these keys to victory. And so you have two teams playing, these two football teams, two basketball teams, or, or just a couple of competitors, whether they play tennis or whether they're boxers, they, they'll put up on the screen these keys to victories, keys to victory. In, in other words, they, and, and these keys to victory will show how can each opponent, how can each of these competitors, each of these teams, how they can win the game, how they can win the tournament or match, what they need to do, what are some things that are key to them. And, and some of these keys to victory, these are things that many of these coaches and athletes, they already know. They've already been preparing according to their knowledge of these keys to victory. However, on these shows, the audience is being brought up to speed. On these keys to victory. Well tonight we see a key to victory for King David in his wars and and the battles that he has experienced. And the key, notice there's no S there because there's one main key to victory for David in his wars and battles is simple. And his key to victory is the Lord. Because we saw that in one instance, in in both of the battles that he went through against the Philistines in tonight's lesson, we see that the Lord in one instance had, had broke through the enemies of David. He broke through. But then you see that the Lord is the one who is setting the strategy not only is the Lord breaking through and going before David, but, but, but the Lord is setting the strategy. In one instance, he told him to, to, to fight this way. In another instance, he told him to fight another way against the Philistines. And so the key to victory is simple for David. Was simple for David. The Lord. And as we talk about David's battles, it, it brings to mind some battles that, that we are experiencing today. And so I need to ask the question tonight. And the question is, what battles are you fighting? Or maybe some people are fighting battles against pornography. 
And if that's you, you don't have to raise your hand or maybe you're, you're fighting battles against drug addiction. Or could it be a battle against anger, uncontrolled anger? Maybe you're going through a battle of alcoholism. Maybe you have this battle going on within you and you cannot shake it. You've been trying to fight it. You read all types of books. You, you went to various counseling sessions. You've, you may have even prayed about it, but, but, but not really expecting God to do anything about it because you already had your mind made up of who you were going to get to help you and what you were going to do in that battle that you experienced. And so maybe that battle for you is bitterness. Or maybe you have this hatred for a person or a group of people that you just can't shake. But nevertheless, all of us are involved in a battle. In this broad battle, and it's called spiritual warfare. So we're all involved in spiritual warfare, but then we got these little skirmishes going on in our lives. So what battle is that for you? And you may have been asking the question, maybe in a different way, but the question you may have been asking, like I said, not exactly in these terms, but you may be asking, well, how can I overcome this? Or what is the key to my victory? Oh, we, we saw the key to David's victory, but, but what about me and my battle and my warfare? Where, well, the key for you is the same, the Lord. But Pastor Darrell, do you, don't you have a more theologically deep explanation? The Lord. He is the key to victory. And, and so the question is, are, are we involving the Lord in our battles? Is the Lord involved in our spiritual warfare or are we coming up with our own strategies? You see that David inquired of the Lord as he went against the Philistines in, in both instances and in both skirmishes. He sought the Lord. Are we involving the Lord in our battles or, or better yet? Here's another question. A sub question to that is, is the Lord setting the strategy in your spiritual battle or in whatever battle you're going is he the one setting the strategy in the lesson we see that God set the strategy the first time he said okay just go up David and we hear that the Lord broke through but but in the second instance instead of David going along with that same strategy even, if, even though it was against the same enemy, no, he asked the Lord again, Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, he could have gone with the same strategy, but no, he sought the Lord. He involved the Lord in his battle. He let the Lord set the strategy. And so the second time, it was more of an ambush. Because it says that the Lord told him, now, no, this time, don't go up. But circle around. Come in front of the balsam or the mulberry trees. And when you hear the sound of marching and, and maybe it was angelic beings, we don't know for sure. But he said, when you hear the sound of marching on the top of these trees, then, then you advance quickly. But it will be more of an ambush. Different strategy, same enemy. 
But I like that David involved the Lord both times. And so I just want you to notice that. Don't put God in the box. Don't, don't, don't try to set these formulas for, for God of, of how he's going to work every single time. Setting formulas for him. David didn't do that here. And we shouldn't do that either. We should involve the Lord in our battles every time because the key to victory is the Lord. And so another sub question would be, are we allowing him to go before us? Or are we taking the lead? Do we know better? Do we think we know better than, than the king of glory? Do we think we know better than the creator of the universe? Are we, are we allowing him to go before us? That's what should be happening. You know, if the, if the Lord is involved, if he is involved in your warfare, if he is involved in the battles that you're going through, that you are experiencing, if he is involved, then the enemy will be driven back. Satan and that demonic army will be driven back. If the Lord is involved, if he is going before you, if he is setting the strategy. If the Lord is giving you those verses in spiritual warfare, that timely word. Remember, the word of God is called the sword of the spirit in Ephesians. He's given us those timely words. You know, just like what Jesus had uh, during the, the temptation period. He was given a timely word. He was using the sword of the spirit. There weren't random verses, but those verses, they fit the battle. They, they fit the temptation that he was going through. That Satan brought before him. And so if the Lord is involved, the enemy will be driven back. And yes, we're going to see the Lord break through our enemy. He's the master of breakthroughs. He's going to break through our enemy. If the Lord is involved, if we allow him to go before us, the Lord will break through our trouble. He will break through our circumstance. He will break through that health scare, that health situation. He will break through that marital issue that you're going through. He will break through that anger problem that you're having, that, that, that drug addiction that you've been battling, that porn addiction that you've been battling for years, probably since you were a youth. He will break through that if you allow him to be involved, if you allow God to set the strategy, if you allow him to be who he is and that is the master of breakthroughs and it makes so much sense because this is a God that we're talking about the biblical God we're talking about who cannot fail he cannot fail he cannot lose this is the undefeated God if you agree with that say amen amen, amen. let's pray father we thank you for tonight we thank you that you are the master of breakthroughs Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have tried to do things on our own, overcome things on our own. Forgive us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that from this point forward, that we would surrender, that we would fall back and allow you to take charge, to allow you to go before us, that we would allow you to set the strategy. 
Yes, Lord, tonight, I pray that you would break through those addictions, those struggles that, that we all face, whatever it may be. You know what they are. We as individuals know what they are. We pray that you would break through, Father. We, we pray against the schemes and attacks of the enemy, Lord. And, and, Lord, we thank you beforehand. We thank you for the victory. And, Lord, I pray tonight that you would bless my brothers and sisters with traveling grace as they leave this place but not your presence. I pray, Lord, that this week they would experience those breakthroughs. They would experience victory upon victory. They would realize that they actually, that we all actually fight from a position of victory because we're in Christ. And I pray that you will open the door, Lord, for you, you to use them to minister to someone to witness to someone. Time is running out. The rapture is getting nearer and nearer. Praise you, my King. And as our hearts are bowed, Lord, we, we pray that you would stir the hearts of Anyone who needs prayer to come forward after the service. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.